Lord. Thank you, Brother Merrill. Great to see all of you here tonight, and uh, we deeply, deeply appreciate you coming and uh, for your interest in the Word of God, particularly in what it has to say about the end time. Um, to all of our guests here tonight, welcome. We're so thankful you're, you're here and uh, that you chose to join us tonight in Bible study. also want to um, wish Sister Melanie a very well-deserved congratulations. She now joins the ranks of grand grandparent. And uh, we congratulate uh, Chris and Hannah on the birth of a beautiful, beautiful baby boy. And uh, we're so thankful. I think they've already gone home from the hospital and everybody's doing well. But we congratulate them and Sister Melanie. Beautiful day. How's it feel? I told her Sunday, yes, indeed. Told her Sunday, now you know why you let Hannah live. And uh, so, uh, but anyway, uh, we celebrate and uh, uh, rejoice with them over uh, such a great thing happening in their life. Thank the Lord. <clears throat> Again, we welcome you. I'll not waste any time uh, other than to say, uh, please remember the bake sale Sunday for, for Mother's Memorial. All these monies, we don't keep any of that here. They all go, uh, they'll be shipped out for what they are uh, allotted for. And uh, it's for a great, great cause. These monies go to help our foreign missionary wives and their children around the world. And uh, so please participate in our cake auction this coming Sunday. And uh, last time we did this, it was a barrel of fun. And, uh, but I'm telling you, buddy, we've got some cakes coming here Sunday morning. Oh, my goodness. You won't be sorry. You won't be sorry. And uh, if you have to end up paying three, four, five dollars $500 for one of them, you won't be sorry. I promise you. It ain't none of this Walmart stuff. This is homemade from scratch, what have you. Uh, I know of a carrot cake coming that is just out of this world. They have all kind of good stuff coming. In addition to the cake auction, we will have a bake sale. And uh, so you'll be able to take some pastries and what have you home with you. But come prepared for that Sunday morning. It's going to be a great, great time. And everybody said amen. Let's jump into the word of God. I want to read tonight from Luke chapter 21. And I want to title this session tonight, Behold the Fig Tree. In uh, Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 29. And he, Jesus, spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, you know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. The generation he is referring to here is a generation in which the fig tree blooms. Uh, I'll go into that in just a moment, but that's the generation he's speaking of. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness. Let me describe and define what that terminology means. To be overcharged literally is to be made heavy as 
is generally the case with those who have eaten or drank too much. To take heed that you be not rendered secure by an improper use of lawful things. In other words, do not make this earth your portion. Expect its dissolution and prepare to meet your God. So when Jesus said, don't be overcharged, that's what he meant. And then he said with surfeiting, surfeiting is literally a hangover. It's what happens the next day after a person has drank too much. So don't be overcharged, making this world your home like it's never going to end. Don't get caught up in that drunkenness, hangover business, the cares of life, and so that they come upon you unawares. For as a snare, it shall come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I'll speak to you tonight again. Behold the fig tree. Where I want to begin tonight, and I'm not going to be repetitive, uh, this material, it's lengthy. That's why we're, we're trying to trim preliminaries. We're, we don't have music. It, I, I like to have the extra time, if you will. And uh, I'll do very well if I can fit this in in a 45 to 50 minute, uh, minute time, slot, uh, time slot. And uh, that's why we're not having the music and, and what have you tonight. But try to catch up real quick. And I think most of you here tonight will have enough Bible under you, under you to be able to do that. But to really understand biblical prophecy, I'm very fervent on this point, but to really understand biblical prophecy and its meaning, one must know that God's primary purpose is to come again and reveal himself to his people, the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. Prophecy isn't really about us Gentile people. It all revolves around the Jewish people, God coming back to them, reconciling with them, restoring with them, and what have you. So to understand the tribulation period, the seven years of Jacob's trouble, as it's called in the Old Testament, the rise of the Antichrist, the second coming of Christ, the rapture, to understand these things and the why, you have to understand that through all of these things is a conduit through which God will use to come back to his people. If you want to know about prophecy, and a couple of weeks ago we went through global prophecy. We talked about earthquakes, we talked about drought and flood and pestilence and, and all of those things. But the main focus of prophecy is, has to do with one city on this planet. And the name of that city is Jerusalem. Keep your eye on Jerusalem. And I believe tonight as we speak, God is preparing that city and those people for his return. I will prove to you in the coming weeks that Israel, even Jerusalem, outside of their temple, having their temple built and erected, outside of that, they are just about as ready for their Messiah as they can be. They have his robe, they have harps, they have music. As a matter of fact, based on my research, and I'll show you pictures of it in the, in the next couple of weeks, 
but their temple is actually, most of it is already put together. It's a prefab, and they have it in pieces to where they can literally, much like Solomon did, they can bring it to the temple mount and erect it in just a matter of days. They're ready for their Messiah. So because of that, we as Gentile people must pay attention to what's going on with the Jewish people, primarily Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always been the centerpiece of prophecy. In Psalm 102, in verse 16, the psalmist said, When the Lord shall build up Zion, or Jerusalem, he shall appear in his glory. The Bible is very clear. We're going to go back tonight and look at some very rarely read and misunderstood Old Testament prophecies for the next little while. It's going to take me a few minutes to get to it, but that's going to be my focus tonight. I want to show you in Scripture where prophecy pertaining to Israel, specifically Jerusalem, has come to pass exactly identical to what the Bible prophesied it would some 2,000, 3,000 plus years ago. We're going to come to that in a little while, but first tonight, let me begin with a little bit of history. Let me also say that uh, I'll make reference tonight to dates such as a 200 B.C. or a 70 A.D. I hope all of you understand the significance of B.C. and A.D. I'm not going to go through all the material tonight to, to tell you what it is. If you want to know, I can tell you after church. But bottom line, B.C. represents a time calendar before Christ. Listen carefully. Jewish calendars all agree that time began around the time of Adam which the Jews believe was some 5,000 plus years before Christ. So Adam would have lived in around 5,000 plus something uh, B.C. before Christ. Well, the closer you get to Christ, the smaller that number gets. It's like a countdown. So Moses would have lived around 3,000 B.C. The number gets smaller and smaller as you get up to the time of Christ. Then when you have the birth of Christ, the calendar goes to A.D., which is Anno Domini. It means in the year of our Lord. So when I say B.C., it's talking about the time before Christ. If I say A.D., it's talking about the time after Christ. I want to introduce you to a man tonight. His name is Vespasian. Israel was literally overrun by the Romans, literally by the... Roman 10th Legion in April through September, in April through September 70 AD, under the command of Titus Flavius Vespasian Augustus. All of you are familiar with this occasion. Jesus prophesied it when he was riding into Jerusalem, fixing to descend the Mount of Olives. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He said, if you had just known your time of visitation, but there's coming a time beyond that that's going to be virtually unbearable for you. And he was referring to the Roman invasion under the leadership of Titus uh, in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the Romans struck a coin that said Judea capta, 
which means Judea has been captured. They, they minted a coin that said that, kind of rubbing it in the face of the Jewish people who had been a literal thorn in the flesh to the Roman government for now quite a few years. So keep in mind, Jerusalem was still in ruins from the first Jewish-Roman war in 70 AD. Josephus, who is a very well-known historian, his book uh, that, he, that, that has been put together and assembled through the years is in any Bible bookstore. He was a contemporary of the time. Reports that Jerusalem was so thoroughly raised or demolished to the ground by those that demolished it to its foundations that nothing was left that could ever persuade visitors that it had once been a place of habitation. Jesus said, referring to 70 AD, that an enemy is going to come and encompass Jerusalem. They're going to starve you out, and then they're going to take Jerusalem, and they're going to level it to the ground where not one stone will be left upon another. And Josephus witnessed and testified to the fact that that happened, that you would never know the city of Jerusalem ever existed on that spot. Not only was it an effort to demolish Jerusalem, but it was an effort to deny that it ever existed, to prevent anyone from ever wanting to go back. There was nothing left. But then I want you to notice this, and this is something that is not as familiar as the 70 A.D. Jewish-Roman War. When Emperor Hadrian vowed to rebuild Jerusalem, from the wreckage in, in 130 A.D., he came in 130 A.D. to rebuild it. He considered restructuring, uh, reconstructing Jerusalem as a gift to the Jewish people. The Jews waited with hope because Hadrian was, a, was considered a political moderate of the time. But after Hadrian visited Jerusalem, he decided to build Aaliyah Capitolina. Aaliyah Capitolina, a new city where Jerusalem used to be and was dedicated to Jupiter Capitolinus to whom a temple was built on the site of the former Jewish temple or the Temple Mount as we know it today, which would ultimately be inhabited by his legionnaires. Hadrian also decided to never allow the Jews to re-enter the city ever again. This is in 130 AD. The Jews were never allowed to enter in what they knew is Jerusalem, what is now known as Aaliyah Capitolina. They were never allowed to enter there again, and Hadrian went on to literally ban circumcision and make it against the law. If they re-entered the city, they would be killed. Orthodox Jews were literally incensed at this harsh degree, secretly started putting aside arms from the Roman munitions workshops, Soon after, a revolt broke out under Simeon ben Kasiba, this Bar Kokhba revolt, as the Jewish people call it, which the Romans managed to suppress, enraged Hadrian, and he became to be determined to erase Judaism from the entire province. So not only has he completely destroyed and taken away Jerusalem, now he wants to take away their faith, their religion, their belief system, and eradicate it from that known part of the world. So the Judean province 
the old city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. The name was changed and renamed Syria Palestina or Palestine as it is called today, as you have heard it called today. The Jews were again banned from entering into the city on pain of death except for one day of the year called Tish B'Av, a Jewish fast day commemorating the destruction of their two temples. It was a day of prayer and fasting for the Jews. Hadrian's new plans included temples to the major regional deities and certain Roman gods, in particular Jupiter Capitolinus. Beginning in 132 A.D., the Jews revolted against the Romans for the last time. The revolt was crushed in 136 A.D., and it was the revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt. Most believe that this is where the difference between Christian Jews that accepted Christ as their Messiah and Orthodox Jews that did not make that uh, accept Christ as a Messiah, most believe this is where that distinction is now made. You have the Orthodox Jew and then you have the Messianic Jew. After this revolt, Emperor Hadrian changed the name of the entire region to Palestine. All Palestinian maps since that time refer to it as Palestine. I want you to understand that. Hadrian changed everything. He took away Jerusalem. Titus leveled it to the ground. Josephus said, you'll never know Jerusalem even existed here. Hadrian came, built another city in its place, gave it a completely different name other than Jerusalem. And then the nation of Israel's name was changed essentially to Palestine. And Judea, or, or the, the old law of Moses, their, their Judean religion was completely eradicated. They could not circumcise anymore. None of that was, they were not allowed to be practiced. It was their way, the devil's way, of eradicating any Jewish tie to that known part of the world. It's important that you note that. The name of Jerusalem was changed to Aaliyah Capitolina. Gentiles had control of the city. Gentiles had control of old Jerusalem from 70 A.D., which included among the Gentiles that controlled it from 70 A.D. were the Romans, the Byzantines, the Muslims, the Crusaders, the Marmelukes, the Turks, the British. They all controlled Jerusalem and the nation of Israel from 70 A.D. The first scattering of the Jews, if you'll let me rewind just for a moment, happened in 722 B.C., before the birth of Christ. When Assyria took Israel, the northern kingdom, or the uh, ten of the twelve tribes, captive. By 600 B.C., the Jews were living in Egypt, Babylon, and Asia. The Roman invasion of 70 A.D. caused a lot of them to be driven out or to leave along with the invasion of 135 A.D., but God promised to bring them back. Amen. These prophecies are important because you can now watch the news, you can read the newspaper, you can read news magazines, you can study post-World War II history, or you can even look at a current map of the world and see that there is now a nation called Israel, and a city called Jerusalem. 
as hard as they tried to eradicate it, God has brought them back. Everybody say amen. Praise the Lord. So for almost 2,500 years, starting with the Jewish captivity under Assyria and Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and almost 2,000 years since the birth and the rejection of Christ, when God held the children of Israel accountable, and then using the Roman army, he scattered the Jewish people into nations around the world. The Jews had been dispersed. They became a people without a nation. However, God said one day he would regather the children of Israel into the land which he had given to them through Abraham. He would give it to them as a nation. This prophetic regathering, which this generation, our generation, is now seeing take place, is to serve as a sign and a warning to the entire world that the apocalypse, or the day of the Lord, draws near. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time, to recover the remnant of his people. I want you to notice this. The Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros, which is a region of Egypt, and from Cush, which is modern-day Libya. Moses' wife was from Cush. And from Elam, which is Persia, or modern-day Iran. And from Shinar, which is Babylon, Babel, modern-day Iraq, and from Hamath, which is Syria, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an insignia for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. How many of you have ever seen the flag of Israel? The Jews are proud of it. They put it everywhere they can, on every ship they sail, on every side of every airplane they fly. It's everywhere with that big star of David in the middle of it. He said, God said, that he would give them an insignia for the nations, and he's done that. Let's go on to Isaiah 43 and verse 5. God said, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. And I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends uh, of the earth. Jeremiah 23 and verse 3. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whether I have driven them. And I will bring them again to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper. And shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved. And Israel shall dwell safely. For this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord 
our righteousness. Let's go on to Ezekiel 37 and verse 21. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, uh, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation and the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two nations anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their eyes nor with their uh, detestable things, nor any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them so that they shall be my people, and I will be their God. We have lived to see the fulfillment of this prophecy in our time. They're one nation under God as we speak tonight. Let's move on. Ezekiel 36, verse 1. Also thou son of man prophesy unto the mountains of Israel and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 8. But ye, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. Verse 24. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Ezekiel 37 verse 21. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel. Does anybody get in the point? God said over and over, I am going to regather my people from the four corners of the earth. You're talking about the fruit. God promised them fruit that they could feed the people. I've been to Israel. You've not eaten a strawberry. I'm sorry about your Louisiana strawberry growers. You've not eaten one you've eaten one from the nation of Israel. You've not eaten an orange till you've eaten one from there. Some of the best orange juice fresh squeezed on the side of the road, just take a whole orange and right down into a glass, and it is amazing. No sugar needed. You don't have to mix their strawberries up with sugar. They are growing more fruit. There, and when we were there in 1999, the nation of Israel was in the top three fruit exporters in the world. Y'all sit there and look at me funny if you want. God has fulfilled every word he has promised up to this point. He has brought his people back. Now don't sit there and say, well, there's not going to be a rapture. If God's doing this, he's doing the rest, I can promise you. So now search through history for a sovereign nation of Israel. Could you find one in 500 B.C.? No, you could not. In the year 300 B.C., could you find one? No, you could not. 100 B.C., nope, didn't exist. 200 A.D., nope. 500 A.D., 1,000 A.D., 1,400 A.D., 1,700 A.D., 18, 1,900 A.D. No nation of Israel existed. 1948, look at a map. Is there a nation of Israel? Yes, there is. God said he would do it, and he did it. How has the world reacted to such a profound fulfillment of Bible prophecy? It is a miracle. It is a huge miracle. No civilization, no race of people has ever been gone from their homeland for over 2,500 years and go back to reestablish it. It's unprecedented in history. And it can be documented simply by looking at the Bible and a world map. God did what he said he would do. 
Remember, God uses prophecy to prove that He is who He says He is and to authenticate the warnings and the promises that are found in the Word of God. The Bible warns a series of events which will change the world forever. That they would begin after Israel would once again become a sovereign nation. I want to say that again. I'll repeat this much. The Bible warns of a series of events which will change the world as we know it forever. And these events would begin after Israel has become a sovereign nation again. We're living in that generation. We're living at this very moment and this time the Bible prophesied. After almost 2,500 years, this remarkable event took place on May the 14th, 1948. God said he would regather his people back into their land. He did in 1948. And God's prophetic clock started ticking again, and it's ticking loudly every day. Every day. Every day. It's not sporadic news of prophecy being fulfilled. It's virtually every day. I could stop here and preach a little while, but let me move on. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whether he had driven them. I will bring them again in their land and I will give them unto their fathers. Understand the significance of that prophecy made by Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Israel is going to live to see the day when they just won't hoop and holler over God delivering them from Egypt. But now they're hooping and hollering that God has brought them back from the four corners of the earth. That has happened under our nose in most of our lifetimes. For 1,878 years of the Jewish people being scattered all over the world, God has brought them back. In Isaiah 66, verse 8, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. We have seen this come to pass. Okay. Y'all up to speed? Everybody on board? Give me a good traditional stoic religious nod. There you go. I'm going to do my best tonight, and I'm going to hurry as quickly as I can. But I want to give you seven parts of this remarkable, almost unbelievable prophecy being fulfilled. There's literally seven parts of it, and I'm going to go as quickly as I can. I want you to notice the first part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy. Consider, first of all, the name of the region. Hadrian in 135 A.D. changed the name of the country of Israel to Palestine and Jerusalem to Aaliyah Capitolina. And it was called Palestine until the early 1900s. You understand that? From around 130-ish A.D., 
to the early 1900s. It was called Palestine. Y'all ever known anybody as a nickname and then all of a sudden they want to be called by their real name? That's been going on for 20 years and we can't do it. Do y'all realize how long this has been going on, man? Over 1,800 years this place has been called Palestine to eradicate Jewish history, Jewish connection, what have you, to that area. It was called Palestine until the early 1900s. And if you take a close look at a present-day map of the Middle East, you will see that 22 Arab and or Muslim nations, Iran, by the way, is not considered Arab, but they're Persian, completely engulf Israel. The Arab countries occupy 640 times the land mass as does Israel and outnumber the Jews of Israel by nearly 50 to 1 and they couldn't stop it. Let's look at a map. Now notice the total area of Israel and Jordan. I hope all of you have, are familiar enough with this that you'll recognize it. That's Israel, and that is the Jordan River running right up through there. So here's Israel, the highlighted area. Here's Jordan on the other side. Y'all got that? Uh, good, I'm glad. Uh, this was referred to as Palestine. You can leave that up there a few minutes. And mandated under British administration following World War I. How convenient that today's Arab propagandists forget that the land east of the Jordan River was also a part of Palestine and is, in fact, the Arab-Palestinian state. From 1517 to 1917, for 400 years, Turkey's Ottoman Empire controlled a vast Arab empire, a portion of which is today Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine. During World War I, 1914 to 1918, Turkey supported Germany. But when Germany was defeated, so were the Turks. In 1916, control of the southern portion of their Ottoman Empire was mandated to France and Britain under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which divided the Arab region into zones of influence. Y'all try to hang with me. Lebanon and Syria were assigned or mandated to France. And Palestine, today's Jordan and Israel and the West Bank, was mandated to Great Britain. Because no other peoples had ever established a national homeland in Palestine since the Jews had done it 2,000 years before. Did y'all hear what I just said? They're surrounded by the Arab people, by the Muslim people. But in 2,000 years, no one was ever able to establish that region as a nation and a homeland. Why? Because God gave them that land and nobody was going to have it until God gave it back to its rightful owner. Boy, that does something to me. I could run through a troop and leap over a wall. Praise God. So because no other people had ever established a national homeland in Palestine since the Jews had done it 2,000 years before, the British looked favorably upon all the crea creation of the Jewish national uh, homeland throughout all of Palestine. The Jews had already begun mass immigration into Palestine in the 1880s in an effort to rid the land of swamps and malaria and prepare for the rebirth of Israel. They started this in the late 1800s. Let me stop real quick and say, when we were in Israel in 1999, our tour guide, his name was Moshe, 
He was in his 80s when we were there in 1999. His parents and grandparents walked from Russia back to Israel. They walked on foot. It was a large caravan of people, and all they wanted to do is get us back to our homeland so we can start planting trees. And they started planting fruit trees of every kind, every kind of tree that that would bear a nut that would grow in that region and so on. You, you don't understand what I'm saying, folks. When you go down the road in Israel, when you, when you leave out of Jerusalem and you're going south towards the Dead Sea, left and right, it's date palm trees, one right after another. Banana trees, when we were there, it was still cool, and they were worried that bananas would get too, too cool at night. And so they had all of their clusters and bunches of bananas covered in this blue cloth thing, and they called it a banana pajama. It was the neatest looking thing. I took pictures of it. But they were preserving their fruit. You would drive a ways down and where Israel had not yet plowed. It was barren, drought, dry, desert. Wilderness. I saw it with my own eyes. Our tour guide said, we don't understand it. But everywhere we plow, it starts raining. You can almost see a line in the clouds where it rains on our crops and our fruit trees, but when it gets to the wilderness, it quits. And every time we expand our farmlands, it starts raining. I don't have time to go into it tonight, but the Old Testament prophesied a latter rain would come to that nation, and they're watching it every day, every day. Do you hear of pestilence in Israel? Do you hear of drought? Do you hear of famine where it's going on all over everywhere else? No, you don't because God is blessing that country. Everybody say amen. I guess the mistake that the Jews made, now keep in mind, and I'm not going to judge them, I'm not going to judge them, period, but I just want to make an observation, is they were always commanded by God in the Old Testament. When you get to your promised land, you drive out the enemy. If he's not a Jew, get him out. When the Jews started coming back in the late 1800s, they didn't do that. Maybe it was a mistake. You can debate that, I suppose, until you go to your grave. God will take care of it in his time. But they did not make any attempt to rid the area of what few indigenous or native Arabs uh, that were living there, they didn't try to get rid of them. And when the Jews went back and started irrigating and planting and there were jobs and there was economy, the Arabs came and still a lot of them, the Palestinians, are there today. In 1923, the British divided the Palestine portion of the Ottoman, the Turkish Ottoman Empire, into two administrative districts. The Jews would be permitted only west of the Jordan River, and that's what you see on the map. That's what was mandated uh, in 1948 or 1920s. They could only go west of the Jordan River. So, in effect, the British had chopped off 75 percent of what the originally proposed Jewish-Palestinian homeland to form an Arab-Palestinian nation called Transjordan, meaning across the river. Now, Hadrian renamed the place essentially Palestine. Fast forward now to the early 1900s. The British are now wanting to name it Transjordan. No Judea, no Israel. They're changing the name from Palestine to Transjordan, meaning across the Jordan River. This territory east of the Jordan River was given to Amir Abdullah uh, from what is now Saudi Arabia, and he wasn't even an Arab-Palestinian. This whole thing works completely backwards (laughs) from what you think it should. 
God seems to do it strangely when he's wanting to fulfill prophecy. This portion of Palestine was renamed Transjordan. Transjordan would again be renamed Jordan, the country of Jordan, right there in 1946. So notice, the eastern three-quarters of Palestine on the eastern side of, of the Jordan River would be essentially renamed twice, in effect erasing all connection to the name Palestine. However, the bottom line is that the Palestinian Arabs had their Arab-Palestinian homeland. The remaining 25% of Palestine, now west of the Jordan River, was to be the Jewish-Palestinian homeland. God said that the nation would be called Israel. Everybody say Israel. Not Palestine, not Transjordan, or anything else. Let's go all the way back to Exodus chapter 4, beginning with verse 22. Moses, being instructed by God, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. But I want you to notice, before Israel was even a nation, God said, Thus saith the Lord, Israel, my son. God wants it called Israel, coming from one of its founding fathers, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, meaning, as a prince, you have wrestled with God and have prevailed. So let's continue. 1948 was obviously after the Holocaust. Harry S. Truman was going to help in making a Jewish nation again. During that time, there was strong anti-Semitism in the U.S. government. Some even suggested that the Jews be given a large piece of land in Brazil. Well, here they are. They've all gathered in that region, as you just saw on the map. And they didn't know what to call the new nation. The State Department didn't know what name to give it. Should we call it Palestine? Do you call it Transjordan? What do you, what do you call it? Watch this. Meanwhile, Israel is feeling its oats, man. The war's over. The Holocaust is over. They have the, the favor of the British government. They have the favor of the U.S. government. There's a man in Israel, David Ben-Gurion. He was the first prime minister of Israel. He had a passion for Zionism. That old law of Moses, let's go back to Jerusalem, let's find our Ark of Covenant, and let's start worshiping God again. This passion began early in his life, and it led him to become a major Zionist leader and the head of the Jewish agency of that time. He became the de facto leader of the Jewish community in Palestine. He largely led the struggle for an independent Jewish state in Palestine. In 1948, he formally proclaimed the establishment of the State of Israel and was the first to sign the Israeli Declaration of Independence. 
Harry S. Truman finally signed the Israeli Declaration of Independence on May the 14th, 1948, and the nation is called Israel unto this day. You may not think that's a big deal, but I think it's huge, man. Not only did they get their land back, but they got the name of it back after it's been eradicated, dispersed, erased, destroyed, whatever you want to say, named two or three different times. They got it back where they wanted it, and God did it, and everybody say amen. All right? Y'all still with me? We're going quick, so I hope you can, you can hang with me. I want you to notice the second part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy, which incidentally, I think that was the longest one, so don't gauge that amount of time for the next six. I think they get a little shorter from here. But I'm, I'm excited about this, man. God loves his people. And he's taking care of them, man. He's going to take care of his people. All right, the second part of this huge miracle of fulfillment of prophecy is there were about 600,000 Jews living in Israel in 1948. Everybody say 600,000. Look at your neighbor and say 600,000. God told them, I'm going to bring you back. Y'all with me? They got their name back. They're in tall cotton, if you will. Watch this. In 1948, it's documented that there's about 600,000 Jews living in Israel at that time. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. There were 600,000 when they came out of Egypt, and there were 600,000 of them. In 1948, man, do you understand what Hitler tried to do and what Mussolini tried to do? You're not going to eradicate God's people off of this planet. I don't care what you do. They've been through the flood and the fire and everything else you can imagine, and they're still there. You know what it tells me? That if God's promise is true concerning them, then God's promise concerning us must be true. Oh, hallelujah. Let me show you the third part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy where I just said they're not going to be all as long as the first. They're not going to all be as short as the second. So don't get your hopes up either. Notice the third part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy. God said that he would bring them back. Isaiah, Zechariah chapter 8 verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Notice, this is just a little small sampling of what has happened. They became a nation in 1948. From 1949 to 1950, God said he would bring them back. From 1949 to 1950, there was Operation Magic Carpet, they called it. The Yemenite Jews returned 49,000 of them in that two-year span. From 1985 to 1986, there was Operation Moses, where Ethiopian Jews returned to Israel, 8,000. From 1990, or 1991, there was Operation Solomon. Ethiopian Jews returned 
14,325 back to their homeland. In the 1990s, there was Operation Exodus II. The Soviet Jews returned, and there were hundreds and thousands of them that have returned to their homeland. Roughly today, some 40,000, or excuse me, some 40% of the world's Jews are now living in the nation of Israel where there were none in 1948. Does anybody hear what the Word of God is saying? God said He would bring them back, and He brought them back. Notice the fourth part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy. Let's take a moment and look at some Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah eleven fourteen, this is awesome. Don't fasten your seatbelt. If anybody wants to run the aisles, feel free. You have a right to do that. <clears throat> but they shall fly. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Even though we don't really smoke pipes. but <clears throat> They shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Sir Isaac Newton, has anybody ever heard of him? Sir Isaac Newton, some say that he was a Christian scientist. Read this verse one day. Sir Isaac Newton read this verse one day and he said, when the Jews go back to their homeland, they're going to fly. Voltaire who was a very prominent infidel of the time, heard what Newton had said, and his response was this. See what fools Christianity makes of wise men? Doesn't Sir Isaac Newton know that if a man would travel over 60 miles an hour, that his heart would quit beating? Well, here comes the airplane, and then here comes the jet airplane. Let's look at the map again. So notice, the prophet said, they shall fly on the shoulder, the upper arm. I want you people to notice, when I went to Israel, this is where we landed. There's a city right there called Hapha. Y'all see that little jog, that little point? You know what they call that in Israel? It's a shoulder. You know what's in Hapha? It's the Israeli International Airport. The prophet said they would fly on the shoulder of the Philistines. During the time of David, this whole region was occupied by the Philistines. This is where Goliath came from in the Old Testament period when they were carried away and before they were carried away captive and so on. The prophet said they would fly on the shoulder of the Philistines. Hapha is a seaside city located in the shoulder of Israel, and it's the home of the Hoffa International Airport. I landed there when we went to Israel in 1999. I think that's pretty cool right there. Notice the fifth part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 9. Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships 
of Tarshish first. Everybody say first. The ships of Tarshish first. To bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified thee. The Old Testament Tarshish is generally the same area as Cyprus and Spain. In 1492, Jews were being expelled from Spain. Christopher Columbus felt compassion for the Jewish people being expelled from Spain, so he began to put together shipments of gold to Palestine to free the Holy Land from Muslims. In addition, he found a land that the Jewish people could flee to, and we call that land the United States of America. Praise God. Columbus did that. may have never heard that story in history before, but let's continue. The next verse, Isaiah 60 and verse 10. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Notice this strange-looking character. Suleiman the Magnificent. Be a good name for some of you that expect children or grandchildren in the near future. Suleiman. A man named Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman, the Turkish Ottoman Empire came to Palestine in 1517 and took over Jerusalem. It took him five years, but Suleiman built, rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. At least what was left of them, there was a small portion of the west wall left that was built by slaves and the Jews begged Titus to leave it standing, and they did, and that's the Wailing Wall of today. Suleiman was not Jewish, but he was a stranger. He was a stranger. But the walls he built around Jerusalem in the 1500s, 1600s, they were 12 miles around, 40 foot high, on average a 7 foot thick. So watch this. Columbus came in 1492. Suleiman came in 1517, 25 years later, and fulfill Bible prophecy, God already in the works in bringing His people back even in the 1500s. Notice the sixth part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy. This is one of the most magnificent fulfillments of prophecy to me in the Word of God pertaining to the city of Jerusalem. In verse 11, of Isaiah chapter 60. Therefore, thy gates shall be open continually. Thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings might be brought. I want you to notice tonight, and let's go through here, and I'm going to show you the gates that are currently operational in the city of Jerusalem I've seen some of them. There's the Jaffa Gate, you would pronounce it. They call it the Hoffa Gate to the west. There's the New Gate. We're going to go through this quickly. West of the north side. There's Herod's Gate, east of the north side. There's a Damascus Gate on the north side. There's the Lion's Gate on the east side, and it's close to the eastern gate. And then there's the eastern gate. Hold it right there, Casey. 
I want y'all to notice if you can see, there's two little arches right here on each side. Do y'all see that? That's a question that is nice to have a verbal response. So I can, if you can't see that, there ain't no point in me going through this. Do y'all see that? Thank you. Do y'all see this cemetery in front of it? Okay. When Jesus was alive, when he came down the Mount of Olives and went through the eastern gate and they did the palm branches and the triumphal entry and what have you, he went through these gates. But it was later on in 640 A.D. that the Jews uh, or, or, or the occupants of, of the land at that time built bigger gates. And that's what you see under these arches. Looks like eyebrows, don't it? Not everybody's eyebrows, but a few. This was built later on. And then let's continue on. I'll come back to the eastern gate in a moment. Then there's the dung gate, which is pretty much what it means. That's where they dumped all of their trash and garbage and what have you on that part of the city on the south side. And then there's the Zion gate on the southwest side for a total of eight gates. The prophet said, therefore thy gates shall be open continually. All the gates are open. All the gates of Jerusalem are open except one. And that is the eastern gate. Watch this. And I'm bringing this to a quick conclusion. In Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 1. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary which looketh toward the east and it was shut. And the Lord said unto me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. It is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. He'll go in. And he's coming out. Ottoman Sultan Suleiman I sealed off the eastern gate in 1541 to prevent the Messiah's entrance. Ha, ha, ha. The Muslims also built a cemetery in front of the gate, which I showed you, and believed that the Messiah would be forbidden to walk through a, seminary, a cemetery. But watch this. There are several things I'm going to share with you here. On December 12, 1917, the British were coming to defeat the Turks, and they almost opened the Eastern Gate. British General Edmund Allenby flew a reconnaissance plane over Jerusalem and dropped pieces of paper for the Turks to give up Jerusalem. It was written in their language, of course, and he signed it, Allen B. When they read it, when the Turks, the Muslim Turks read it, they thought the note said, Allah is God and his Nebi are prophet. The Turks surrendered to Allen B without firing a shot and the eastern gates remained closed. It was on another fateful day on June the 7th, 1967, that Jordan's King Hussein 
had made up plans to open up the eastern gate in an apparent attempt to disprove Bible prophecy. But it was also on this incredible day that the famed six-day war ended and Israel regained possession of the eastern portion of Jerusalem and this included the eastern gate and so it remained closed and it is still closed to this day. Y'all can sit there and say, eh, it ain't nothing going to stay shut up for that many years unless God's in the middle of it. You think God cares about detail or what? He's even concerned about a gate going into Jerusalem. But he went through that gate and he said, I'm going to shut it up until I go through it again. And when I go through it again, it'll never be closed. Watch this. The seventh and final part of this huge miracle and fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 65 and verse 20, and I'm bringing this to a conclusion. I think Paul had three. I'm getting close to the end in one of his epistles, so I get one more. In Isaiah 65, verse 20, There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. In other words, there's going to come a day when people are going to start living to be a hundred. Anybody here tonight looking forward to that day? Notice, in the pre-flood era, the antediluvian world, the pre-flood, pre-Noah's flood era, 1,600 years, 10 generations of people, average lifespan was 856 years. How would you have liked your mother-in-law to live back in them days? Go ahead, Brother James, you ain't right. And you can't wait to, you can't wait to get out here and get on that phone either, can you? The post-flood era, 500 years, 10 generations, average lifespan. This is after Noah's flood, 321 years they lived. In the Law of Moses era, 1,500 years of it, average lifespan was 70 to 80 years fulfilling Psalm chapter Psalm 90 and verse 10. During the time of Christ, the average lifespan was 44 years because of disease and war. In 1918, average lifespan in the U.S. was 54 years. In 1948, it was 62 years. In 1998, it's 78 years. Notice a recent quote from the U.S. Medical Journal. Babies born in this century in rich countries will eventually live to their 100th birthday. Danish experts say that in the 20th century, people in developed countries are living three decades longer than in the past. Bottom line, they're saying that children born now will live to be 100. Isaiah 65 says, and it's actually a verse pertaining to the millennium or the thousand years of peace, people will live to be hundred, But isn't it amazing that doctors are already making observations about a time that doesn't yet exist, but the Bible says that's coming. And if they're predicting, if the medical world is predicting that babies born now can live to be a hundred, 
then how far away are we from the rapture? Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive. He has to go back up into heaven until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The world restitution essentially means going full circle. So when you see Jerusalem, Israel, and the Jewish people being restored, then you know that Jesus is about to come again. They've gone full circle. They got their land. They named it. They established Jerusalem. It was all taken away. It was destroyed. It was demolished. It was renamed. But now they've gotten it back and they've named it what they want to name it. They've got Jerusalem back in the next couple of weeks. They're ready for their Messiah, people. They've gone full circle. They've gone from a nobody to a somebody to a nobody to a somebody. The thing they're waiting on now is their Messiah. In 66 A.D., stand with me tonight. That will give you hope. <clears throat> In 66 A.D., the Romans began to camp all around the Mount of Olives. Vespasian was the emperor of Rome. When he was elected, he pulled out to go back to Rome, and he gave it to, uh, gave it to some of the Jews that saw... It gave opportunity to some of the Jews that saw what was coming, a small window of opportunity to escape, and some of them fled to the Jordanian ruins they were given to Solomon, were protected for a time. Titus came in from the eastern side, tore down the walls, and burned the temple, which was Herod's temple. From that time through 1948, from 70 A.D. till 1948, Jerusalem has been under the control of at least seven different Gentile powers. Gentiles have controlled Jerusalem now for many centuries. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, the Jews took back Jerusalem under their control for the first time since 70 A.D. In 1948, they took back control of the city of Jerusalem for the first time since 70 A.D. They found a stone in the western wall. It's the Wailing Wall as we call it now which was built by Jewish slaves, so Titus left it. I told you about that a minute ago. This stone is about nine feet long, and it has an Old Testament verse carved in it. This carving was done hundreds of years before, and it was out of the same chapter that says, a nation would be born in a day. This was a prophecy literally written in stone. The prophecy was this. Isaiah 66 and verse 14. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like a herb and the hand of the Lord shall be known towards his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. If there's anybody here tonight that believes 
that you have a lot of time to get your heart right with God, you're believing a lie. I don't like scare tactics. I don't believe in them. I don't use them. But I'm going to tell you the truth tonight. And if it scares you, it is what it is, but it's the truth. In my opinion tonight, we're living on borrowed time. From the basis of my studies, which I have spent hours, the rapture could happen before you go to bed tonight. If you're not ready, you need to get ready. You need to get right or you'll get left. The Jews believe the coming of their Messiah is soon. The second coming of Christ, the coming of their Messiah, is actually seven years after the rapture of the church. So if they feel like it's close, how much closer should it be for us? I believe his name is Hein Richmond, but he told a preacher friend of mine back in the 90s, he first of all said in one interview that he said, I've been close, so close to our Ark of Covenant from the Old Testament. I could have reached out and touched it, and they will not tell anybody where it's at. But he said, now we're working on a perfect red heifer, which they use for cleansing purposes. There was, there's nine of them that's been literally sacrificed. The tenth was Christ himself, and they don't accept that. So they're looking for that tenth and final red heifer to cleanse and purify their nation so they can receive their Messiah. They're raising them today by the herds to find that perfect red heifer to offer up as a cleansing for their nation. They're ready for their Messiah. Are we ready for our rapture? If you're not, you need to get ready. I should you bow your heads for a moment. Father, we love you tonight. <clears throat> and God, only you know the heartbeat of our spirit tonight. There's a part of me that's excited and literally ecstatic knowing that tonight could be our last night on this planet. Tomorrow could be our last day. We could be raptured out of here in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But God, I know tonight that there's people standing in this building that's not quite there yet. They're not quite ready. And I'm asking you tonight to let your spirit abide with them, walk beside them, be with them tonight when they go to bed, be with them when they get up in the morning, when they go to their jobs. I pray, God, tonight that after hearing what has been presented tonight, that every person in this building would understand we don't have long until the church is raptured out of here. I pray, God, tonight that we would believe that, that our actions that our conduct, that our lifestyle would be lived in such a way that says we believe that. And God, we're not here tonight just to be saved so we can make the rapture. But we want to be right with God so we can spend eternity with you. We love you tonight. We care about your kingdom. And God, I rejoice to watch the fulfillment of prophecy concerning your first love, your first bride. I'm thankful, God, to have been included, and I regret the price. But I'm thankful here tonight to stand as someone blood-bought, born again, into your kingdom. I pray tonight, God, that all of us will keep our eyes lifted up heavenward, that it will be in the front of our minds every day that we live from here to rapture, that we will expect the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Speak to us tonight. Abide with us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name.
And everybody said amen. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. I appreciate you deeply for being here and uh, hearing the word of God. Spread the word. We'll be back at it this coming Wednesday night again. Bring your friends, your neighbors, your family, and uh, let's enjoy our time together sharing in prophecy. God bless you tonight. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord.